As Simon said, um, we are reading from 1 Peter, and you will find that on page 1217 in your Pew Bibles. We're starting from verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you sorry, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In the Bibles, it's on page 616, and I think Nick is poised to read that to us. So Psalm 116 on page 616. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy, because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I trusted in the Lord when I said, I am greatly afflicted. In my alarm, I said, everyone is a liar. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation And call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious is the sight of the Lord, is the death of his faithful servants. Truly I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank you offering and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem. Praise the Lord.
Well, thank you very much, Nick, for reading that to us. I'd love you to keep Psalm 116 before you. I'm sure bits of it will potentially come up on the screen as well. But if you have it open in the Bibles, that'd be good. Let's pray to God as we turn to his word. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this simple reminder that you're a God who speaks and you want us to know you. And we pray that as we turn to your word together, uh, we'd have that awareness of hearing your voice as we trust you hear our voice. Uh, How amazing, Father, that you would want to know us. We thank you that you do. We pray that we would grow in our knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm guessing that uh, most people will have uh, been aware of the news that's been unfolding in Morocco in the last 48 hours and the terrible reminder that's been of how quickly things can change for people and a situation of, of terrible danger can envelop people. When I wrote my sermon on Friday, the earthquake that struck there hadn't yet happened and I as I penned my sermon, wrote about another situation of great and sudden peril from which people needed to be saved further back in history, Uh, a time when, in just a few moments, everything changed. One moment, people were enjoying pleasure and luxury. They were dancing to live music, or maybe they were eating from a la carte menus, or swimming in a pool, or sleeping in opulent bed linen. But the luxury in question happened to be that they were on board the Titanic. And as we all know, on April the 15th, 1912, within minutes, everything had changed. Life hung in the balance as people found themselves in the icy waters of the North Atlantic. If you know the statistics, over 2,000 people were on board that ship, and two-thirds of them died suddenly. And I guarantee that many of them, in a desperate situation cried out to God for mercy for themselves and for others. Because when we're in a life or death situation like that, even the atheist is likely to abandon their creed and call out to God. And I suppose that might be in that sort of situation just superstition. It might be clutching at straws. It could be naked terror. But it could be a genuine call to the only power big enough to deal with an emergency, to the eternal God. And it might, of course, be entirely sincere and lead, after that point, to a lifetime of service of that mighty God. Now, something like that must have happened to the person who wrote Psalm 116, which we had as our reading today. Just listen to his testimony in verses 1 and 2. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. You learn from that little section there, certainly, that he's experienced a wonderfully answered prayer. He says it three different ways. God heard his voice, God heard his cry for mercy, God turned his ear to him. It's a wonderful thing actually to be noticed by anyone, to be known and heard. Susu, my wife, was telling me about an opinion piece she read last week 
in the paper which reported that loneliness was in reality a far greater health risk than, and the example it quoted there was smoking or excessive alcohol. I'm not sure how that sort of thing gets verified, but it certainly makes sense, doesn't it? How many today, and I don't know, maybe it's a male problem more than women having this problem, maybe especially British men, how many today feel isolated or somehow isolate themselves by not letting other people in? And what a help in that situation it is to have that sense that I am known by someone. But still more amazing, wouldn't it be this, to be known and accepted by God, that he hears our cry. That's an amazing thing. The psalmist had cried out to God in desperation. But in this case, it wasn't just a flash in the pan. The cry for mercy wasn't just something in the moment. You think about it, we might dial 999 when there's an emergency situation, but nobody wants a fire engine parked in the drive full-time, do they? And often we expect God to come running when we're in trouble, but we don't really want him involved in life full-time with us. Maybe we can look back on a time in the past where we were conscious of God saving us, but the testimony is no longer in the present tense not a living relationship with God today. The notes of our teenage testimony from camp when I was 16, they're actually neatly filed, gathering dust in some drawer in the bottom of my desk or at the back of my mind. Now, for the psalmist, that wasn't how he felt. He says, I love the Lord. Present tense, and surely we can go further. The psalmist's cry for mercy was answered by Jesus Christ's blood in a way which our psalmist could barely imagine. But we know it to be true, don't we? He loved me like that, dying for my sin. So, of course, our testimony ought to be to love him in return. I love you, Lord. A love relationship. And for the psalmist, it was an ongoing, genuine love relationship. That I will call on him as long as I live, he says. So that's where he's got to as a result of God's dealings with him. We're going to come back to that sort of settled position, that dedication, I'm going to call it, at the end of the psalm. But I want us to see how he got there. Let me walk us through the psalm in three stages. Danger, deliverance, dedication. Let's try and feel the sense of the deadly danger which he describes in verse 3. He says, the cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. And I know that language of the cords of death entangling me, it's almost got sort of nightmarish quality of a horror movie about it, the snakes on the gorgon's head coiling around me. Only this is not just a movie. Uh, maybe the appeal of horror movies is that we know they aren't real. The worse the spectre is, maybe the safer we actually feel as we watch them. But this is genuine danger. He's in death's clutches, and death's grip is icy. Now in the psalm, as it was read, you'll have noticed this, the detail of the peril isn't really spelled out. It could have been illness, it could have been a human threat to his life, but the trauma he was passing through had huge emotional consequences as well as physical. 
says he was overcome by distress and sorrow. But there's another aspect of the danger to ponder. It's this, where does it leave me with God? Does it drive me from him or to him? Will I let the crisis humble me so I cast myself on God? Or will I instead try and fix everything myself or fool myself that I can do that? It's up to me. I've got the resources to pull through. That, it seems to me, is the real danger faced with the deadly peril that I kid myself that no one else can help and it's all down to me and I've got to sort it out myself. But you see in verse 4 how the psalmist didn't make that mistake. Verse 4 says, Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. Later on in the psalm, he says it felt like no one else can be trusted, but God could be relied on. He knew that. There's a line in the lovely old hymn written by someone who knew he was dying. He says this, when, others, when other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. That was his experience. The crisis drove him to God. So stage two is this, danger, deliverance, divine deliverance. Let me read verses five to nine again. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Now my heading Their deliverance comes explicitly from verse 8. You, Lord, have delivered me from death. Uh, Physically, that had happened with the physical danger eliminated somehow by God in answer to prayer. But there's also a lifting of the emotional turmoil he faced as well. You've delivered my eyes from tears. And a future opens out before him, lived in relationship with God. No more stumbling through life. Instead, a steady walk in friendship with God every day of our lives, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And that's a full salvation, isn't it? Even if we haven't yet felt the cords of death entangling us, we certainly will in the future, I'm sure. But this is pointing us to something much more serious, a salvation with a capital S that is being explained in the psalm. On the night that the Titanic sunk, there was a preacher from Glasgow on board called John Harper, who had to jump overboard and who urged anyone in the sea with him who could to put their trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. And I guess as he spoke that way, his thinking was that to be saved from the Atlantic was one thing, and of course he longed for that to happen for people there, But even more important would be to be saved from spiritual death. There was a Canadian man called George Henry Cavell who was there. He called himself the last convert of John Harper. He recalled how this guy Harper had asked him once, had he been saved? And he'd had to answer no. And he'd explained as he had this snatch of conversation how he could believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he'll be saved. Two men drift apart in all the chaos. 
But another conversation was still possible later on for the two of them. Are you saved? asked Harper again. No, said Cavell. Well, said Harper, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And George Henry Cavell's testimony was that with two miles of the Atlantic beneath him, he did put his trust in Jesus. He was rescued from the ocean that night. But even more significantly, he was saved from entering eternity without a relationship with Almighty God. I wonder if you believe tonight that that is a danger even more serious than any life-threatening episode we have faced or will ever face. Let me put it like this. If we imagine that life is basically like a, a luxury ocean liner where we're just having a great time, we probably won't feel the force of a psalm like this. I think we tend to imagine that the world is a giant playground for us to enjoy and we dread our playthings being taken from us. Sometimes death will force its attention on us and it'll point us to the fact that we need a rescue. We're not dancing to live music, sailing merrily on. We're not even in the icy ocean facing a watery grave. The Bible tells us that without a relationship with God, we face an eternity cut off from him. And more serious still, we're exposed to his judgment on our sin. Jesus Christ has made provision to save us from that. He's died for our sins on the cross. But that deliverance is not automatic. It has to be received. And I wonder, therefore, if you know for sure that you've taken the deliverance God offers you and, as it were, got into the lifeboat. The danger faced by the psalmist was a deadly peril, but more deadly still is to face life beyond the grave without God. And God is able to bring deliverance from that fate if we'll only take it. And that means rest for the soul is at last possible. I love the assurance he's able to preach to himself in verse 7. Return to your rest, my soul, he says, for the Lord has been good to you. Where does the whole experience leave him? Well, let me point us to a final stage in the psalm. Danger, deliverance, dedication. His response is expressed well in verses 12 to 14. Verse 12, what shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Not enough to call on him once, he'll go on doing so. I'll fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. What I notice in that is particularly the public commitment he makes. He doesn't just drink from the cup of salvation. He lifts it up for others to see. He makes a promise but he goes public on that promise in the presence of all God's people. I think, I don't know how it's come about, we have a tendency to think that my personal relationship with God is a private matter. It's between me and God. When the, uh, the pandemic closed church buildings, I suppose it was a lifeline in that situation. We thank God for it, didn't we? To keep some sort of semblance of corporate Christian identity by tuning in together to Zoom services. Here we are a couple of years on. Uh, the easy option now 
and it's easy and tempting to take it, is sometimes to operate as a private customer. So it might be easier for us, we think, to just tune in to YouTube on our own. And I suppose maybe physical incapacity makes that option the best some people can manage. But notice how the psalmist repeats the idea of public commitment and dedication. Let me read on from verse 17. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. Verse 18, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Which is a straight repeat of verse 14. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem, praise the Lord. And of course, the psalm we've looked at is exactly how he made good the vow he'd made. It is a public dedication to tell God and to tell everyone, I love you, Lord. I may still have to pass death's gloomy portals, but precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his people. I do so in friendship with the one who conquers death. So I have nothing to fear by being committed to him. And equally, I'm not isolated from other believers I live out my relationship with God in the public domain with other believers and friends of his. So just look at verse 14 and verse 18 again and ask yourself if you can make this dedication with the psalmist. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. He says it twice, so I'll say it again. I'll fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. What is the practical implication for us in this idea of dedication? Well, let me ask us a couple of questions. Is my experience of salvation so fresh to me that I will dedicate myself to serving my Savior with every fiber of my being in life, and even in death. Ponder that, will you? Will you do that? And will I go public on what God has done for me and tell others about that? Are you willing to do that? I wonder if we can practice that a bit ourselves. I did give you a bit of a warm-up in the half-time break. I wonder if, I don't want to make people do this. If you'd rather listen rather than speak at this stage, that's okay. But I wonder if just take a moment or two. And if you're willing to do this, tell someone sitting near you your story, or rather the story of God's work in your life, if you're conscious of that. I know that not everybody here necessarily feels they have a relationship with God yet. yet. But I hope you won't mind if that's you to hear from somebody that does. And if you want to talk about something different, and that's the best way to kill the time at this stage, then let's do that. But I'd love to give you a bit of practical homework time to talk with someone sitting near you, if you're willing to do that quickly.
Am I allowed to interrupt? I'm going to um, call time on, on that experiment. There's no reason why you shouldn't carry on that conversation afterwards. I think it would be great if you want to do that, to continue talking in that vein. Let me also just say, by way of homework further, I have put on the table at the back 18 copies of a little bit of paper that says how to give your testimony. Um, I don't know who wrote it. It could be Christopher Ash. It could be Mark Ashton. It's certainly not Simon Scott. It's great. A little, uh, a few bullet points that you may never have seen before. You're welcome to pick up if that would appeal to you. Just look at that and we can print off more if they go like hot cakes at the end of the service. We're going to sing a, a closing song to finish our service now.